Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Our economic emergency has only just begun. That was what Rishi Sunak told MPs this week when he set out his spending review. And the eye-watering numbers backed up his warning. £280 billion already spent on the coronavirus crisis. Unemployment set to rise to 7.5%. Growth lowest since 1709. The deficit approaching £400 billion. We're going to take a close look at what we learned from the Chancellor's statement. And as the country prepares to come out of lockdown with a promise of a five-day easing of restrictions for Christmas, and it's going to go back into some form of regional tiers, we're going to look at arguments over the economic costs of placing parts of the country into tighter restrictions than others. Big economic questions, some big IFG economic writers to answer them. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio today by Chief Economist Gemma Tetlow. Hi, Gemma. Hello. Our senior economist Tom Pope. Tom, great to have you with us. Hello. And IFG Senior Fellow Giles Wilkes, often on this podcast. Hi, Giles. Hi there, Bronwyn. Okay, let's start with the spending review. Gemma, what did Rishi Sunak set out to do? And did he do it? I'd say he set out to do three things yesterday. One, as the name spending review suggests, was to lay out spending plans for next year, giving departments the money they need to cope with the ongoing costs of COVID and to do their normal activities. The second thing was that having decided not to do a multi-year spending review because things are just too uncertain at the moment, he was not supposed to be setting out longer term spending plans for any departments. Finally, uh, his job with the new forecast from the Office of Budget Responsibility was to set the scene for the difficult tax and spending choices that are coming later in this parliament, but that he didn't say anything about yesterday. Um, On the first, I think he, he succeeded. He set out plans for all departments next year. On the second, I'd say he pretty well failed because even though the government hasn't firmly set out a multi-year spending review, they have actually now made so many commitments to different areas of public services from the NHS, defence, schools, um, that actually they've already allocated something like two thirds of departmental spending despite not having done a multi-year spending review. And on the third, Rishi Sunak did try quite hard to talk about the need for getting back to more sustainable public finances in the longer term. But I think that's the conversation that has only really just begun yesterday. Great. Well, Giles, let's pick up that point. There were lots of bad figures in there, weren't there? I mean, he was trying to give us a clear warning. I mean, how, how bad were they? And what, what do I mean? Well, can I put it in a slightly counterintuitive way? This is a good year to have bad figures because the cost of interest on, on the loans is so low that if there was ever a year where you had to do an awful lot of borrowing in order to make sure that you're secure and strong in the years ahead, which is ultimately what matters for our sustainability, this year is an important year, but the following 30 years are really important too. If there was ever a year when you had to do a lot of borrowing, it was this year. And one of the most striking facts in the OBR's report was the one about debt interest and the cost of it falling by 10, 15 billion pounds. And that means obviously that it's more fundable to be doing a lot of borrowing right now. What matters far more is whether we get back to where we were before or 3% short of it or 6% short of it, which the different um, OBR scenarios examine. And there, everyone's justifiably uncertain. But these borrowing figures were about as bad as we thought. And nearly everyone says, actually, now's the time to have bad borrowing figures. Okay, and that's the office, the budget responsibility that that, that we're talking yes. about. But if this year is a, is a good year to have that, what about next year? I mean, that, you know, this is one of the big arguments, isn't it, about how long has, has he got, how long has the country got 
take advantage of very low interest rates. Well, this is this is where it's critically interesting. We've gotten used to for the last I don't know thirty years that the government doesn't really have to have a view on fiscal timing. It doesn't matter that the government chooses to time its tax rises or not. And this is the view even George Osborne took when he faced a big big, big deficit. It was it doesn't really matter whether I do it now or next year. We need to get it going, and it doesn't and it won't really affect the economy. Now it is crucially important because if you do it. Too late in the view of some in the Treasury, interest rates start rising and there's concern that you're not going to get on with it. And if you do it too early, you destroy the recovery before it happens and you leave an indebted private sector unable to lift the economy going. Now, most people would say it's better to err on the late side because there's no sign the bond markets are going away. But yeah, I agree with you. You can't put it off absolutely forever. At some point, a really difficult timing decision has to be made. I just think everyone agrees that it's not exactly now. We'll come on to that point in a bit more. But, Tom, take us into some of the detail. I mean, was he generous or, or tough? I mean, you've given some money for departments to deal with, with uh, coronavirus, but there have been cuts for non-coronavirus work. How, how does it look? Yeah, I mean, it seems kind of amazing, doesn't it, when a chancellor is set to borrow $390 billion this year and commits another $50 billion to coronavirus-related spending next year. We could be debating whether he's a generous or a tough chancellor. <laughs> and, again, if you're in one of those departments that, as Gemma mentioned, already has a um, confirmed spending settlement, so you're in the NHS or schools or defence, then again, you've got that long-term settlement that's been guaranteed and they're pretty generous. But the Chancellor did cut non-coronavirus spending relative to what he was planning in March by about £10 billion each year. And because schools in the NHS and defence are still getting what they were already going to get, that's, that means less money for other public services so for those public services, you're looking at only a small real terms increase year on year. And that could easily disappear if some of the COVID related spending needs to be needs to continue beyond next year, which the Chancellor currently perhaps optimistically is assuming won't be the case. So generous in the short term and generous if you're in the right public services. But for other public services, it won't feel nearly as generous. Gemma, take us into the, the public sector pay freeze, one of the most controversial things that's been indicated. How big a deal is that for the government in saving money? It's actually probably not going to save them all that much money. Uh, I think the Institute of Fiscal Studies have estimated it could save them perhaps one to two billion pounds next year, which is not peanuts, but it's not a huge amount. And the reason that it doesn't save more is because uh, Rishi Sunak chose to protect certain public sector workers, in particular the ones in the health services, but also lower paid public sector workers. And whilst you can see the political attraction of protecting lower paid public sector workers, actually, from an economic standpoint, it's hard to justify that. Where there are problems with public sector workers facing lower wages than in the private sector, and where there are problems recruiting and retaining staff actually tends to be amongst the higher skilled, higher paid public sector workers, rather than at the bottom end, where actually public sector workers already have quite a significant pay premium over their private sector counterparts. So you can see the politics of why they protected the lower paid, but actually, it's hard to really think from an economic standpoint that that was the most efficient way of targeting um, that part of the public spending cut. And as you said, not raising, uh, not, not not saving huge amounts of money. I mean, Charles, what about the aid budget? Another one of the, the this week's rows, if you like, and um, saying that uh, it's going to be cut temporarily from mm. 0.7% of GDP to 0.5% of GDP that has uh, 
is smaller than was expected, and no fixed date for when it's going to return. Saving a lot of money? Is it, is it yeah. good politics? There's, there's politics and politics, um, and the politics that I think has motivated this from both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor is the politics of the happiness of the Conservative Party more than how it polls more generally or our overseas reputation. Bluntly, if you do policy tournaments, this often wins. In other words, if you put it up against other policy choices, people say, yes, I like the sound of that. And I, I once saw in Prospect magazine it actually won as the most popular policy idea. We need to be cutting overseas aid and, and helping things like the defence budget. And it's very popular with conservatives who suspect it's wasted or it's not good for the countries that receive it. So I think this is actually a base-pleasing measure and one that also helps him fiscally. And the politics that the leadership of this government right now is worrying about is keeping its, the party together and reassuring it that despite all these counterintuitive conservative moves to affect people's lives in the coronavirus regulations and borrow crazily, they are still conservatives at heart. And this is a very conservative measure. So I think he's probably regrettably got the politics of it right for his own purposes. Whether it's the right thing for the country to be doing, well, a, a lot of people will disagree, let's say that. All right, well, it was, let me take the, the three of you into another one then, um, because there was quite a bit in this statement. Uh, the levelling up fund worth $4 billion and obviously aimed at a lot of the Northern and Midlands uh, supporters that the Conservative Party won at the last election. But but they intend it more widely than that, and they talked about uh, areas having to bid for this and uh, with the support of their, their MPs and so on. What do you all make of um, whether that is uh, useful money and whether it's going to go in the right places? I think it's a dismayingly um, unoriginal answer to a problem that we've already been doing things like this. The, the European Regional Development Funds that were there as part of our EU membership and the Shared Prosperity Fund that was meant to be a replacement for that and the Stronger Towns Fund and the Regional Growth Fund that was put in place by the coalition when the regional development agencies were gotten rid of and etc etc there's there's been central pots for people to bid into to come up with productivity enhancing ideas for certainly as long as i can remember and if they worked by now we would have solved a lot of the problems they're meant to be dealing with on top of this we have the very telegraph tweet um points that he made that he wants local mps to approve of this which is going to produce all sorts of weird politics as well on top of the suspicion that pork barrel politics will play a part following what seemed to happen with that Towns Fund and the MHCLG stewardship of it that seemed to favour, let's say, politically sensitive and valuable spaces over other spaces, I, I, I'm not particularly impressed. There's no way that £4 billion is enough to fix this problem. In fact, some people think it's going to be hundreds of billions of pounds. And I would say it needs to be something much more about economic policy, not just government money. Can I just add a couple of things to that? I mean, First, it's hard not to think this was quite a politically motivated uh, move. The fact that this money has to be spent before the next election suggests that the Chancellor is trying to get it into projects where there'll be something visible before people ne next go back to the ballot box that they can see, oh yes, this was what this government delivered um, for my high street. But um, just to add to what Giles said on the sort of the economics of this. And much of what Rishi Sunak said in his speech was about projects to improve town centres and high streets so people can be proud of the places that they live in. But it's difficult 
I think the, the towns around the country that have vibrant high streets is not because previous governments have invested in doing up the high street. It's because the people in those areas have jobs and income to spend on those high streets. And that's what drives the vibrancy of local areas. So I think Giles is right that really solving the deeper economic problems of some of the most sort of depressed parts of the country is probably not about four billion pounds worth of spending on town centres, but something much deeper than that. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, previous analyses, for example, by the NAO of similar policies like the regional growth funds have tended to find that while they do something, they don't necessarily offer the best value for money. But um, I'd echo what Giles and Gemma have said there, that four billion on specific projects that can be shovel ready and implemented quickly is not going to be the thing that really delivers on leveling up more broadly defined. All right, so let's look ahead and try and look at what this is going to mean for the budget in the spring and indeed for the big manifesto pledges about uh, avoiding uh, uh, rises in the main taxes and so on. Uh, Gemma, this is something you've written a lot about. Do you think there's anything, has this week told us anything about what we can expect? Even before the coronavirus pandemic, we had a situation where the longer term public finance projections suggested that the government was eventually going to need tax rises or spending cuts to avoid ever rising borrowing. And coronavirus pandemic has probably just layered extra pressure onto that. So it was always uh, economically unfortunate that the Conservatives have for several elections running painted them into painted themselves into a corner of ruling out any increases in the rates of the major taxes. Because if you can't raise the major taxes, then you're stuck scrabbling around for tax raising in smaller parts of the tax system, which potentially means pushing up rates on taxes very high to try and claw out what you need. Just remind what the big taxes are. So the big tax, sorry, the triple lock manifesto pledge that the Conservatives had is not to raise income tax, national insurance contributions or VAT, which between them raise the bulk of tax revenues every year. Now, I think, I suppose the one thing that we did see yesterday was that Rishi Sunak was willing to ditch one of their other manifesto pledges, which was the commitment on aid spending, which we've already talked about. So that might pave the way for a reassessment of some of those other tax-related manifesto pledges. Um, but I think that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, again, if you're, if you're going to break manifesto pledges, this is a good year to, to do it. I mean, Charles, we had some interesting thoughts before when we were chatting about whether it's easier to make spending cuts or tax rises. I mean, I, I always thought it must be easy to do tax rises because they land all over the place and they're broad and even and irrational and the spending cuts have got their own special interests attached to them. And that was the, the right wing fear about the endless growth of the state. But I think George Osborne kind of disproved that, that it was possible to put through spending cuts at a particular historical moment. And although there were costs, and boy, have we seen some of those costs come up in the coronavirus crisis, um, they don't get pinned on the government doing them as quickly as, for example, 1994 and Ken Clark trying to go after fuel or 2017 and Philip Hammond trying to go after some self-employed tax breaks. So which ones is he going to find easier? He's so far seems to be willing to put down a flag for the tax uh, for the spending cuts first because he's put down a 10 billion pound spending cut relative to his March plans once coronavirus has gone through 
And there is a real open question about whether he'll ever face the tax decision because of the interest rates being so low and the Conservatives being in two minds about whether they still need it as a political strategy to be able to say to facing across the Labour Party, we're a smaller state government than you would want to be. I'm not really sure that they feel they have to even say that anymore. They feel that they can actually just show that Conservatives are better at running a big state than the Labour Party. Or maybe that's their new strategy. Well, I'm going to come on to this in just just a second. Uh, but Tom, I, it, Giles was just talking there about things cut under uh, the, uh, the, when George Osborne was Chancellor. One of them, social care, which was uh, very much exposed when the coronavirus hit, um, of the, these um, support for care homes and so on. Do you think that the government is going to feel obliged to put more money into this? I mean, it said it wants to repair social care, but so have lots of other governments. Well, if you recall, I think when, when Boris Johnson entered Downing Street, he said that he had a plan ready for, for fixing social care, but we still haven't heard it yet. Um, and you know, this has been a problem that successive governments have been dealing with. I, I think it's going to be difficult not to put more money into social care over the next few years, but there are much bigger problems not with social care. It's not just ha- how much funding there is, but the way it's funded and the responsibility that local governments have for it while those local government budgets are being cut all the time. So there really is a bigger reckoning to be had on social care. The broader fiscal situation is going to make it harder, but I'm not sure it's a problem that the government can sort of kick the can on for another few years. I have to say yesterday's announcement made me pretty uh, pessimistic about the prospects for really sorting out social care funding. Because if this year has taught us anything, it's taught us the importance of the social care services and the pressures those faced in with coronavirus. And yet what we saw from Rishi Sunak yesterday was an announcement of some more money for social care, but most of that money coming by asking local authorities to raise council tax. And what that means is that local authorities will end up with more money for social care if they happen to have a robust council tax base, if they happen to have high value properties in their area, rather than being in an area where you have uh, lots of people in low value properties or who don't pay council tax. So that just looks like the almost the lowest common denominator answer to funding pressures in social care this year. And I, that just makes me a little bit depressed and um pessimistic about the scope for really addressing this problem. Giles just brought us back to the point I wanted to end this this section on, which is just returning to this question of of interest rates and whether there is a real uh, difference of economic philosophy now between Conservatives and Labour about um, how much the government can spend and indeed how much it can borrow. Where where are you on that, Jim? Most economists would agree, and I think all of us here, that in, in the short term with um, interest rates at record low rates, the chance has done exactly the right thing this year in supporting the economy, supporting jobs. That that was the, the fiscally responsible thing to do, to try to avoid longer term economic pain. And similarly, I think that because this money has been borrowed at low rates, the government doesn't need to be so worried about the fact that debt has increased because we've been able to finance it not only at low rates, but also with very long maturity. So we don't, the, we're borrowing on sort of 50-year bonds and, and things like that. The thing that is more concerning and will need to be addressed at some point is not just the fact that debt is high, but the fact that it will continue to grow year on year if the annual deficit, the difference between spending and receipts is too large. And so what um, the Chancellor 
um, presented yesterday from the OBR of there being a 4% deficit in uh, 2025, and that's because the economy is going to be smaller. That kind of borrowing is not going to be sustainable forever, even at relatively low interest rates. And we can't guarantee that interest rates are going to be low. So I think there's definitely a big question about timing and when any deficit that emerges needs to be reduced. But I don't think it's something that you can put off forever. So, Gemma, do you get the sense there's a difference between um, the Conservatives and Labour on this, or indeed between the Chancellor and um, the Prime Minister? So, I'm not sure we've clearly seen, in terms of the overall level of borrowing, a difference between um, Labour and the Conservatives. I think one area we haven't really touched on yet where there perhaps is a difference in priorities is that Labour have pointed to uh, the need for more money for the lowest income people, and in particular the cuts that are coming forward in April to the temporary increase in universal credit payments, where for now the government is very much sticking to the line that it will take away the £20 a week increase in universal credit, and it's going to freeze um, local housing allowances, the amount of money that people get to subsidise their housing costs if they're on benefits. Um, if that if they do go ahead with those plans, then that would start to be a divergence in priorities, I think, between Labour and uh, the government in how much they want to uh, support the lowest income families and those out of work. If Labour are serious about wanting to do more of that, then that would suggest higher levels of public spending, which would necessitate uh, more tax rises. Obviously, the the answer for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party in the previous election was to raise taxes on the rich and businesses. Um, and there were always questions raised about the extent to which that was really feasible. Um, I don't think we've really seen Keir Starmer's Labour Party version of um, where he would focus tax rises. Yes, we haven't even seen things that I would have expected to see from them uh, now, uh, for example, on property taxes and, and, and local taxes and so on. Giles, where, where do you think the, the edges of conserv- conservatism and Sunakism are? Oh, my goodness, what a great question, because part of it is it almost feels like theology, the argument about where in the future the bond markets will ultimately force governments to face trade-offs again. And because it's in the future, I suspect the difference between number 10 and number 11 is number 10 is much more willing to say, you know, let's party today for tomorrow, who knows? Whereas number 11 understands the deep theory that ultimately money does have to be paid back. And one of the problems of the recent period, with the combination of QE and borrowing at very low interest rates, people are talking as if it is actually free. But one interesting thing the OBR did, it's worth going to the OBR document for this, is it pointed out that the more we're funded through QE, which is effectively zero maturity borrowing, in other words, just borrowing immediately off your bank at the current interest rate, the more that we're shortening the maturity of our debt, which means that when interest rates do move, the risk comes about much more quickly. So in other words, QE isn't free. It has to be paid for at the current interest rate. If interest rates go up and we don't match that, everyone tries to get rid of that money and we have massive inflation. So there isn't free lunch. And actually relying on QE means that when interest rates rise, we're going to have a bigger problem. Now, it's the nature of anyone who works in the Treasury to think about those sorts of problems, even if they're five or 10 years out and they might affect someone else. That's just what you do as the culture. So I think that's one of the big differences between number 10 and number 11. As for what Sunakism means, I'm afraid otherwise, I think it's still an immature idea because he's had such an extraordinary period in in government. There isn't a chance to operate in normal circumstances and you need those to see the way the man really thinks. I would say that what he wanted to do, which was end 
coronavirus job retention scheme early, get the market mechanisms working quickly, puts him more at the kind of hawkish, what we call Austrian economic end, where he wants to see the free market make tough decisions and thinks ultimately the British economy will prosper through that. But we haven't had a chance for him to actually demonstrate this. And now furlough's going on till March. It might be a long time before we see him actually face those kind of tough Margaret Thatcher-style scenarios that really reveal a politician's temper. Let's turn to something more immediate then for our second topic, which is paying the price of Christmas. Coronavirus did cast a long shadow over Rishi Sunak's statement, and it is still doing that over pretty much all of our lives. This week, we've heard announcements from the Prime Minister on the plans to lift the national lockdown next month, and a five-day period of fun when up to three households can meet in a Christmas bubble, and then the tiers which different parts of England have been placed in. More details to follow, but first the Prime Minister needs to get these new measures passed Parliament, and he's already facing a backlash from his own MPs. Gemma, 70 Tory MPs, the, the COVID recovery group, have said that they will not support a move to a stricter three-tier tier system unless the Prime Minister sets out a cost-benefit analysis to justify the restrictions, although the government's now said that it might do that. What are they really asking for? I'm not sure if they know exactly what they're asking for. And when you start thinking about what a cost-benefit analysis might look like, sort of the trade-off between locking down and limiting the disease spread versus allowing the economy to operate, actually you very quickly realise that it's quite a complex question to answer. Um, And maybe they haven't um, fully appreciated how how difficult it would be to get an answer to that sort of question um, from Treasury. On the other hand, I can understand why they're asking for something a bit more than what we've seen so far, because the government sets out quite a lot of detail on the disease spread every time we have a new announcement of changes to the public health restrictions, but really next to nothing about their thinking around what is the impact of these changing measures on the way people live their lives and the economy. And undoubtedly, those other considerations are playing into the decisions that the government made. Um, For example, when back in October, they decided not to implement immediately a national lockdown. Undoubtedly, that was because they were concerned that whilst that would limit the spread of the disease, it would have other costs. Um, But they haven't been very good at sort of illustrating um, or talking about these things, even if they can't put a precise cost-benefit analysis number on those things. These MPs are getting at a a serious point. Look, uh, these are still very extensive restrictions uh, after many, many months uh, on what people can do and who they can see and so on and how businesses can operate and the government should justify this. But as you said, you you know, on the one, you could, the government, you could ask the government to spell out, well, how many more um, lives might be saved from these restrictions? Uh, What would the damage be to the economy? But some of the arguments for the Christmas break are really ones that seem to be very hard to quantify. For example, uh, how much it will cheer people up or the fact that people were going to break the rules anyway and so it's very bad to have an unenforceable rule uh, so they better lift the rules. And that kind of thing doesn't... Uh, Giles, what do you, you, you're no stranger to cost-benefit analyses. What, what do you make of this call? I think it's incredibly hard to offer a proper cost-benefit analysis because, I mean, if my somewhat Keynesian views are right, it doesn't matter how much things really dip now, so long as you shield and protect sick people for the recovery. The real cost is whether you've got permanent damage to the economy and you've sat people's long-term potential, you hurt people's education, that sort of thing. So it's not to do with what happens to GDP 
in the next few months, although that's going to be what hits the headlines and is possibly easier to analyse. Because if you effectively tell people to stop doing the following economic activities, that relationship to GDP is maybe quite easy to measure. And we'll certainly have quite a lot of um, data from the world in 2020 to, to measure that. That might not be the point. What we don't know is 2022, whether our economy is very much weaker because of having a lockdown in 2020. So to provide that trade-off is extremely hard. And uh, you might say, you know, how the government's responds to the problems will then affect it. So, you know, if, if it shields and protects people really competently, then maybe we'll be fine and there won't be a long-term economic effect. So I've got a little sympathy with the Treasury beset by these very clever modelers saying, show us your workings, because it's one of those times when a reasonable shrug is about right. The final point I would say is there's, sorry to use another of these phrases, but there's discontinuities here. And that, that what it's not a smooth curve. If we hit a certain level of infection that leads to a certain level of hospitalization, and that's been a pretty strong relationship, and the hospitals overflow, suddenly we can't provide healthcare to people, people with COVID and people without COVID. And that is an existential problem. And as a result, you could understand the government saying that if that risk goes above 5, 10, 15%, we cannot bear the thought of it. We need to lock down. And really, the GDP cost against that can't be measured. Tom, can I ask you whether you we've got a sense um, of what the furlough schemes have really done in the, in the way of saving jobs? Uh, the Chancellor was saying, look, uh, they've saved some, um, I think he said, hundreds of thousands of, of, of jobs. Things are much better than they would have been. And, and we know, you know how much they've um, helped the high street, which is inevitably taking a massive hit. Yeah, so we, we know that the furlough scheme at its peak was being used by um, over 9 million people. So 9 million jobs that were being furloughed on the scheme. And that by mid-September, that was down to 2 to 3 million. And 90% of the people who left the furlough scheme in that time went back to their job. So there were a whole load of people who probably at least temporarily would have been made unemployed who ended up going back to their job. And I think that sort of suggests that the furlough scheme was a pretty resounding success. Of course, we don't know exactly what would have happened had the furlough scheme not been there. Maybe those people would have been made temporarily unemployed and then just rehired by their employer again. Um, but e either way, it seems like the furlough scheme was uh, very successful. As to whether it sort of helps the high street, it, it definitely protects businesses on the high street and jobs on the high street from either bankruptcy or unemployment respectively, and it keeps them afloat. What it can't do is replace the, the income, the earnings that they would have got, and particularly um, around this time when uh, they obviously tend to do quite well and rely quite a lot on the profits from this period. So it, it can shield them, but it can't. It, it's no substitute for the economy being back to normal for those, um, those sectors. Right, and to end on a more upbeat note, I mean, given that we've had these, these news of three different vaccines um, being very successful in trials and people talking about them being rolled out um, within weeks or early in the year and people need to talk about when to get back to normal, how, does, um, how, how do you look ahead at the economic prospects and try and take account of that? You say, uh, well, look, it may all snap back to normal very, very, very quickly or businesses now know how long they've got to hold on. What should... 
what, what you know what, how would you advise the chancellor to take account of this this news suddenly breaking i think it does change the picture from where we were even a few weeks ago before the more positive vaccine news and certainly in terms of the policy decisions that rishi sunak is facing he can now think more carefully more clearly about do I can I afford to keep tiding businesses over for a few months rather than possibly facing the prospect of months or years of continuing support? So I think it does make things uh, more positive, and you can see in the scenario, the sort of three scenarios that the Office of Budget Responsibility set out yesterday. They had three different scenarios for the effectiveness of the vaccine, how quickly it could be rolled out and how quickly things could go back to normal. And those do have quite different implications for the economic outlook. However, I think there are reasons to be a bit less sanguine. So the one thing that Rishi Sunak didn't talk much about at all, or I'm not even sure he uttered the word, was Brexit. Uh, which obviously the transition period is coming to an end at the end of December. And quite helpfully for the first time, the OBR put together a a no-deal Brexit scenario in their forecast yesterday, which suggested that if there is no deal with uh, the EU, then that could add further drag on the UK economy uh, and in five years' time be depressing growth by roughly half of the impact that the OBR thinks uh, COVID is, will be depressing growth in five years' time. So that's kind of, there are downside risks here as well. On the upside, the one thing that's been unusual about this recession is that actually because of all the government action on things like the furlough scheme, household incomes have really been supported. And at least among um, some households, people have saved an awful lot this year. So one sort of positive upside is the question of what do people do with that money once they are released from these lockdown and able to go back to something more like normal life. So the back to normal includes talking about Brexit full time again. <laughs> Giles, quick glance ahead uh, post vaccine. Well, Brexit's enormously important, and here you've got to admire the OBR. Like, I mean, like, like Gemma said, I counted, very good podcast for the OBR. <laughs> it is, it is, I, I, and I say this because in 2009 I wrote a pamphlet critical of the suggestion that they be created. So I've been making up amends ever since. They made um, uh, 62 references to Brexit in their report. The um, the Treasury doesn't mention it at all, as Gemma says, doesn't even use the word exit more than three times. So the biggest and most economically significant event, twice as significant as coronavirus to our structural position, was mentioned only three times in the spending review at maximum. And I think it's that's quite staggering. Um, I know that it's really hard to measure economic impacts of things during a time like coronavirus, but Seriously, this is such an important event still. Just because we all got incredibly bored and stressed of it doesn't mean it's not really still important. So I think that's still easily the most important thing. On the question of the vaccine, I found looking at it and modelling it, if you think there's going to be a hard stop to this coronavirus pandemic, it makes you value more not catching the disease now. If you think you're going to be going through constant waves of it, then the value of avoiding it for the next month or two feels like pointless effort. If it's going to come to an end in the spring, what a pity to catch it now. So I think it ought to incentivise people to just take the lockdown really seriously and pay attention to the tears, which they should. Interesting point. Thanks. And I wonder whether the government's uh, silence on Brexit is something to do with the fact that they still at this point uh, don't know whether there is a deal or not, nor do we. 
We will come back to that in the future, though. But with that, we're going to have to wrap up this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Tom Pope, Giles Wilkes, Gemma Tetlow. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more of our discussions, please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got some great new shows for you there. We've got an event on what might happen next for Scotland as the independence question rumbles on. That's one of the big stories of next year. And next week, we'll be discussing the future of special advisors now that Dominic Cummings has departed the stage. You can find all of our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. And please do give us a review. We always like them, whatever they say. You can find all our work, including all our latest analysis of the spending review, at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. That's it for today. We're back in the tears. And if the Chancellor's gloomy projections are anything to go by, more tears to come for this government. See you next week.